Hello, Paul. How are you? Happy New Year. Happy, m- Merry New Year to you. Um, good to be back. It, it is good to be back. I'm really unprofessional to be chewing chewing gum. I sure um, don't. Um, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Um, yeah, it's good to be back. We we usually leave a bit more of a break for January, but we this year we wanted to get back in as soon as we could. Ah, oh, we're like, uh, yeah, just so enthusiastic. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's a new decade. I'm looking forward to this year uh, being very productive. Um, with that in mind, we have the right guest for that. Can oh. do attitude. Oh, getupandgo.com. Yeah. Triple wall to wall Pauls. So many Pauls. So many Pauls. Paul Dwan, um, yeah, an amazing filmmaker. You probably have know his work uh, at this stage. Uh, very prolific. Um, has had a lot, of, like so much experience. Uh, we did have him on before, but we were mostly focusing on the film that he was had just finished at that stage and his producer, Nick Franco. Uh, so I always kind of had to be great to have him and have a bit more of a general chat. Yeah, we, w- we wanted to, you know, kind of disseminate a lot of his experiences because he's kind of, like, from a filmmaking point of view, he has done a little bit of everything really well. Yeah. And has had, you know, success in lots of different ways. Yeah. So we wanted to not only, uh, he's more famous for his documentary uh, material over the last few years, but we wanted to kind of explore some of some of his other early experiences and I mean he's done everything from show running to, to directing episodic TV, developing comedy pilots, um you know, uh, everything really. Uh, you name it, he's kinda had a had a run run at it and he's worked uh, also, you know, fairly consistently in the UK and then come back here and what's really interesting is somebody who he kind of embodies what resilience is all about because he is somebody who has worked uh, to a really high standard developed his own material uh, ostensibly show run his own show and then coming back to Ireland and then working on a storyline and then going on and then going back to feature feature docs and um, just inspirational get up and go figure with a brilliant attitude yeah and uh, he's going to be taking part in the panel discussion that we're doing for the documentary Finding the Story course, which is Saturday, the 18th of January. That's next That's next week, Paul. It, it is, yes. Um, where, so where, where's that happening? It's Rob? happening in Dublin Business School, uh, just off Grafton Street near the Westbury Hotel. So uh, it's going to start at 11 and we, I'm going to be taking the course uh, right through to 5 o'clock. So we're going to be talking about we're going to have a focus on short documentaries and uh, you can apply a lot of those same skills to any kind of documentary you want to make. But um, yeah, it's really looking at making really compelling story films and then when we have them, uh, getting them out there as yeah, well. So yeah. I'm going to talk through finding stories, finding subjects, working with your subjects um, and then applying for funding, mm-hmm. editing, making making the films and then a uh, big one will be looking at festival runs and distribution and all that sort of stuff. So I'm I'm really excited. I've I've put together the course now. Um, I've got uh, I'm really focusing on other short documentaries that have made been made in Ireland. So that I'm going to be showing a few of those to show what can be made and we'll have a few case studies and we'll discuss them. And also, if you're thinking of doing it and if you have an idea, uh, we can kind of do a little bit of workshop. Mm-hmm. On on people's ideas, if if they're comfortable with pitching, um, and then in the afternoon, uh, for, in the evening from five till seven, we've got a really exciting panel of filmmakers, uh, to discuss making feature films. Then, so kind of making the leap from shorts to features. So we've got Alex Vegan, mm-hmm. who uh, made the Irish Pub, yeah, older um, than Ireland, one of the, it, the probably the most co- commercially successful duck yeah, of the yeah. last kind of, and kind of you know he kind of came up with that himself. He wasn't going, oh, this is one about a band or this is about, you know, it was kind of like, almost like an essay mm-hmm. and uh, did really well. Uh, Nassany Keenan, amazing filmmaker, probably best known for School Life, also known as In Loco Parentis. Uh, really beautiful film that did amazingly well and she has a new film that's really exciting as well and Paul is going to be Paul Dwan is going to be on the panel as well yeah so if you like the cut of Paul's jib over the next 40-50 uh, minutes and you'd like to hear a little bit of more, of more of that or if you like the cut of the other Paul's jib 
do come along. Um, it'll be a great day, a great day for everybody concerned, um, and a, a great kind of overall um, shot in the arm, and uh, you know, mo I suppose motivational day to help people you know, uh, rev their engines again uh, for 2020. Um, there, you know, from a documentary point of view, there's a lot of really interesting things uh, happening out there. And we, we personally, from like an FNI and myself and Paul's perspective, we'd love to just hear what people are working on and uh, try and be of service in some way to that going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, yeah, let's go to Paul Dwan. returns uh, I think you're the first person to come back and do uh, a second podcast so thanks very much for doing that well, thank um, you for asking me the last time uh, we spoke you were just getting to ready to premiere what time is death yeah, I think that's about a year ago yeah Yeah. how did that go and yeah uh, the premiere was fantastic, yeah. yeah. We sold out um, the IFI 1, which is like 250 seats. A lot of people involved in the film came over from the UK to be there, um, including, you know, a 10-year-old uh, uh, girl who was one of the youngest people to have bought a brick to, to be on the pyramid of uh, of uh, the People's Pyramid. And uh, yeah. we had an absolutely fantastic uh, screening. Um, it hasn't been shown um, in Dublin since then, but we had screenings in Cork, Galway, uh, Kerry, this toll, at a retrospective of my work, um, and working on international premieres. It's taken longer than I thought to get it out internationally, partly due to things. Uh, I'll, maybe I'll discuss it when we come to we, we yeah, we're talking yeah, through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's it's been an interesting experience. Yeah, uh, yeah. you did a retrospective in October and November. How did that go? Uh, I think it went fine. I wasn't there for most of it. I yeah. was down in Listowel and I was really honoured to be asked. You know, yeah. it was the first time anybody's ever done that. They just showed six of my films and uh, in a, they have a beautiful um, theatre space in the middle of Listowel in, in an old church and they screened them all in there and I did a public interview and had a really interesting time. It was fantastic. Really cool. Nice, a total kind of like out of the blue thing to be asked to do but like I loved it, you know. Yeah, Who, yeah. who wouldn't? <laughs> yeah. And was it, did they pick your documentary work or? Yeah, yeah, it was just all the docs, yeah. Yeah. Just the feature stuff. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, because there's, what have you got, six or seven feature docs under your belt Six, now? six feature docs and a uh, couple of TV series and a uh, bunch of shorts. <laughs> a lot of mad stuff. Yeah. <laughs> when you first started out, was it, was it directing drama that you won wanted to do yeah I mean when I started I didn't have a clue what documentary directing actually entailed it was very it was a complete uh, mystery to me you know I knew I knew I, I kind of had a sense of what drama document dr drama directing could be mm. um mind you it took a while for me to get get the hang of that as well but um the other thing is it would you know shooting documentary on film um because I started out in the era when it was all on film, stuff on video was really clunky and low-tech. You know, the, the technical challenges of shooting docs on film when you have a limited amount of stock and you have a limited amount of time before the reel runs out and all that kind of stuff. I still don't know how people do it. When I watch old docs made in the 60s and, you know, like how the hell did they know to keep running when nothing was happening, to wait for yeah. something interesting to happen? The way we, we do now instinctively because we have digital and we can just keep... It's not costing you anything. Yeah, so docs were never in my kind of field of vision at all <laughs> really yeah what was it was it a story that came across your desk that made you think in terms of documentary yeah it really was i um it was 2007 or 8 and i had just moved back to ireland from the uk and i was in a friend's house visiting in galway and i saw a little piece in the Sunday Times magazine saying that uh, the notorious um, author John Healy, whose book The Grass Arena had been a bestseller until it was yanked out of print because of his uh, undefined violent behaviour, um, was making a, an appearance at the Court Literary Festival in Galway and it ended with saying, you know, he has been known to be dangerous, you have been warned. And I was like, 
I read The Grass Arena when it came out. It was an amazing book about, um, it was John Healy's autobiography about growing up um, a, a London Irish kid being bullied in the immediate aftermath of the war because Ireland hadn't been in the war and, you know, so Irish people were, or kids of Irish people were seen as collaborators and becoming an alcoholic, becoming a street wino, becoming a criminal, then learning chess in jail, deciding to devote his life to chess, giving up drinking, going on the chess circuit and then giving up chess because he found the class system in Britain too terrifying and restrictive and becoming a, an author instead. So this is a great book and I always wondered what happened to him. So the fact that he was reading in Ireland seemed interesting to me. So I managed to, I pitched to, um, actually to Adrian Lynch, who at the time was the guy in charge of Animo uh, Production Company in Dublin. He's now the head of RTE, I think, um, Director General. I'm not sure what his actual job title is. But, uh, and he said, Grant, he gave me a small crew to go to Galway and shoot for a day with uh, John as a, as a promo for the, uh, for the film. Um, and that was the start of it, really. I mean, I'd never thought about doing a documentary before then, but I just thought this story has to be told because this man literally had been everywhere. I mean, his first book became a huge bestseller. He was on TV all the time. He had a movie made of it, the, the, the movie made of it, which was, um, God, who's that actor? He's in uh, Spielberg movies now. Uh, anyway, the, the, the guy who played him, he'll, his name will come to me, is now a huge star. And uh, I mean, everything seemed to be going right for him. And then he disappeared completely off the, off the, you know, his, the book was taken out of print and he disappeared off the press, off the pages, and off the TV. And uh, I made a film about him and about his life, but it took six years. I mean, it took okay. from 2007 when I first met him to 2011. No, it wasn't. It, it was longer than that. God, I'm trying to remember. Um, it, it took it took quite a long time to get yeah. the film finished, and uh, but it was such an extraordinary experience that it kind of set me on that path a, a, a bit, you know, that I hadn't been before. Yeah, um, and you kind of you kind of have a knack for finding those kind of stories where maybe there's some sort of profile, but they've kind of fallen off, and you're kind of good at rediscovering and getting things out. Is that something that you kind of? Yeah, well, I used to be. I mean, the trouble is now, what you find is um, there's an awful lot more people searching these stories out. You know, mm. as soon as something peaks above the... I mean, I'm still interested in looking at stories all the time. Last year, the year before, I was uh, on top of... There was an extraordinary story about the re-emergence of this um, soul singer from the 60s who had had a hit record in Canada, um, but who was transgender and who uh, was still alive and living in Nashville as a recluse and got on, like fought tooth and nail and managed to get that film kind of about you know was 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 about to happen and uh, then she died okay <laughs> yeah. um but um Jeez. you know there was a there there is a the number of stories that I've nearly made mm. isn't far greater than the number of stories I've actually made because it's one of the things about the kind of people I like to make films about is they're very volatile and sometimes they can be difficult and sometimes they can be um, too obscure for for funders to get behind. Yeah, they're kind of on the fringes, so you're. Yeah. it's not the easiest thing I've made. Um, might go back to how you ended up in England and uh, kind of your work as a director there. Uh, I'd made a couple of short films that attracted a bit of attention. One uh, was written by Donald Clark, who's now the... Irish Times uh, esteemed film critic. Uh, it was called My Dinner with Oswald. It was a comedy. It was the first comedy I'd made and it did very well. I mean, it actually, <laughs> the film sold to French uh, Canal Plus or whatever um, before it was even finished. I mean, they saw the cut. Like, like That had never happened to me before. It was kind of weird to make a film that was kind of um, seen as being commercial and viable. And off the back of that, I got asked to direct uh, Ballycus Angel, um, first, the first Irish director they brought on after several years. It's a weird thing. It still happens. I mean, there's a, uh, the Young, Offen Young Offenders is currently shooting in, in Ireland and they've done three series and the only, they've, they've only had one Irish director who was the guy who originated it, the, mm. the original director. I mean, you know, the it, it's really, really incumbent, I think, on Irish funders to try and make sure that the people making TV shows here take on Irish talent as directors and the world productions who are making Bally Kay made the effort, did that, um, interviewed me, brought me on, gave me my first drama directing gig and uh, it was great. It was fun. It was like shot on film, properly funded. Uh, great cast, including um, Colin Farrell, who was, at that time, I remember him asking me, like, 
you make short films, don't you, Paul? And I said, yeah, I have done. He says, how do you get cast in short films? Because I keep going in for castings and they won't ever look, they, they never give me a part. And I'm like, <laughs> I don't know, Colin, just keep trying, you'll get there. <laughs> but um, yeah, it was, it was a break and then it, that kind of brought me to the UK where I directed um, Tommy Tiernan in a sitcom called Small Potatoes, which was a lot of fun, but uh, somehow or other just didn't seem to click with people. Um, um, and, uh, was that a Channel 4? Yeah, Channel 4, Doc, mm-hmm. our, our uh, sitcom. Yeah. Tommy, Ahmed Jalili, um, Sanjeev Baskar, really good cast. And we had a lot of fun doing that, but it was, you know. Uh, and then th- I just basically stayed there and kind of started doing more sort of fairly bog standard, middle of the road TV, like casualty and uh, stuff like that. And, you know, had fun, but wasn't really going anywhere. You know? Yeah. And what was the biggest lesson you learned from that period? I think the biggest lesson I learned was I don't want to do this forever, yeah. <laughs> because there were directors who were then the age I am now, uh, in early 50s, who were doing it, or even older, and I just couldn't see myself. Uh, I didn't want to be doing this kind of... Because TV drama directing is really... It's hard work, and it's not all, not that not that rewarding, you know. It's, it's kind of like traffic duty, you know. You're out there, you're just going, okay... And shoot this scene, get the next scene done, you know. It's, make the day. Yeah, make the day, exactly. Yeah. And it's, uh, it can be great fun, but Jesus, you want to do more with your life, you know. So I kind of, um, that was when I f- kind of felt, okay, i got to start using what I've learned to get my own stuff done. So um, I, a lot of my friends were reading this uh, blog. It was the early days of the internet and, uh, well, not the early days of the internet, but the early days of blogging and blogs were a big deal. And uh, there was this blog called Belle du Jour, um, which was the story of, anonymously told of a woman who was a sex worker, but she had, uh, it was a secret from her family, from her boyfriend, from her co-workers. And uh, it was a double life kind of thing. And it was, it was, she told it in installments, you know, and it was gripping. And we were all talking about it and going like, "Who? what kind of person is she and what's going to happen next? And is her boyfriend going to find out and all that? And it was around the time that Sex and the City had just been cancelled. And I was, I remember I was having a shower and thinking about Sex and the City being cancelled and going, they're going to need something. And I kind of thought, huh, maybe this could be a TV show, this Belle de Jour blog thing. So that started me on the road of producing. And that was, again, a very long and very difficult one but I mean you can imagine the difficulties of trying to contract with an anonymous author mm. who wanted to remain anonymous but we got we optioned you know it took quite a lot of time and I was terrified I, I was terrified all the time that somebody else would see that this was a good idea because yeah. the blog was enormously popular yeah. and I remember sitting in City Airport coming back to Dublin one weekend and there was a Saturday supplement feature all about Belle de Jour and the first paragraph of it was practically a pitch for a TV series and I was panicking going because we hadn't signed the option and thinking somebody else is going to swoop in and get this. Right. Nobody else noticed. I mean, it was different times. I mean, now, as I say, there are teams of development people and research mm-hmm. people out there combing every newspaper, magazine, combing Twitter, combing Facebook, mm-hmm. f- Instagram for ideas. Then they weren't. And I managed to latch onto it, managed to hold onto it. And then over a long period of development where it was first developed at Channel 4, then, was it the BBC? No, it was never BBC. First at Channel 4, then they let it go and ITV ended up picking it up and it was made as the first ITV co-production with um, Showtime in the US with Billy Piper in the lead as Secret Diary of a Call Girl. So that was kind of, you know, um, a huge turning point for me because suddenly I had my name on something that was actually success and you know I was creatively involved as opposed to being kind of director for hire yeah and that also gave me a certain amount of financial freedom for a few years because I was getting well you know decently paid while the show was on the air it was five seasons so for for those five years okay I had a producer fee and a slice of the production fee that kept me going and I was able to develop my own stuff and that was a point where I started to work on the John Healy film and it enabled me crucially to say no to work that I otherwise would have grabbed with both hands you know directing You know, because I came back from London and I had quite a bit of experience directing TV, so there were jobs here for me. And I could have ended up directing comedy or directing drama here, but I kind of went the other way and said, look, I really want to develop my own stuff and hang on to it. And, you know, looking back, sometimes I wonder if it was the right (laughs) thing to do, but, you know, it's kind of put me where, it's got me where I am. 
which is kind of not the worst place to be. And at least I've made six films in 10 years, which is kind of, you know. Pretty good going. It's, it's okay, yeah. Yeah. And uh, kind of, did you, for a while, did you see yourself as a producer? Or did you think that that might be something you could? Oh, no, I am a producer and produce right. my own stuff. Your own stuff, yeah. I think this is the thing that I tell people who are making documentaries starting out or making anything starting yeah. out is be a producer because oh, I hope, a lot of people I know are not listening to this. Most, <laughs> don't most, worry, producers, most producers that I've worked with in Ireland don't know what they're doing. Mm. I, there are some. I'm not going to name them because I want to tell every single producer I meet that they're one of the ones I mean, you know, in case they think. But there are an awful lot of people who just say, I'm a producer. And there's nothing. I mean, it's not like being a director or a writer. You, you don't have to prove anything. All you have to prove is that you can get some money. Mm. So... The fundamental skills of being a producer are being able to read contracts, being able to put together a spreadsheet, being able to put together a budget, being able to put together a cash flow, being able to put together uh, and stick to schedule and understand how a crew works. These are not huge skill sets to learn. I mean, they're not as difficult as learning to direct. And if you want to control your work and if you want to fundamentally, I mean, if you're working on documentaries, you're usually working on quite restricted budgets. What you don't want is somebody coming along and taking 20% of that as their fee mm. and then just not doing very much for it. So I would say the decision to call myself a producer and to produce my own work was absolutely crucial in my development as a director because it enabled me to control it and to kind of say, I know exactly how much money there is in the budget. I know what's going to be spent on post-production and what's going to be spent on graphics and what's going to be spent on, you know, travel and catering. And I know it's all going in the right places. Yeah. yeah. And... Um the Diary of a Call Girl, that probably gave you some kudos <coughs> then going forward with Amber. Yeah, yeah, that was probably why we got, you know, I mean, it was kind of a, it was, it was you know, a, a nice thing to have on your resume. And um, so well, what happened was uh, myself and um, Rob Coley set up a company called Screenworks and uh, started out by doing... I can't remember the name. They have these this web series thing for RTE. They do them every... Oh, the Storyland. Thing. Yeah, Storyland, yeah. Mm. So they had just brought Storyland in, so we applied and we got to do two of them. So we made two Storyland series, and that was kind of crucial because, again, another part of the whole skill set that people don't talk to you about is relationships and building relationships. And even though Storyland was very low budget... We were dealing with the drama commissioning editors and we were dealing with legal and compliance and all that in RTE. And you kind of, it's a testing ground, really, because we had some real, we had a couple, given it was such a small project, we had a couple of real crisis points on that. And we handled them, I think, very well. And we were seen by the commissioners in RTE to be people who had a safe pair of hands and didn't lose their heads when things got sticky. And that relationship, plus the fact that I'd done a fair bit of stuff in the UK, kind of allowed us to go in and pitch to do bigger stuff like Amber, which was a €2 million Euro budget for four hours, which is not a huge budget, but for us it was the most money, you know, it was big, a big leap from a Storyland budget. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that project, was that something that you had generated? or? Oh, totally, yeah. yeah. It was um, based on personal experiences in Rob Cawley's life, um, personal experience of a family member going missing and uh, something he desperately wanted to express. And uh, between us, we kind of came up with the the format of it, which was quite unusual, the kind of four individual episodes that kind of overlapped and, you know, each one would give you a different perspective on the previous, which uh, I've been reliably told by people in um, who've made much bigger and more international shows since then was studied and nicked for other other shows in the uh, in the in the few years mm-hmm. after that. I'm not going to name them, but um, the, uh, yeah, and then, and, you know, it was, it was a really, really ex- extraordinary experience to make that. I was producing for the first time at a proper level. I mean, I wasn't directing it. I was, uh, Thaddeus O'Sullivan directed it. I stayed in the background, just stayed in the production office, trying to keep an eye on the budgets and trying to make sure we didn't um, kill ourselves with um, going over. Were so, you yeah. tempted to direct at any point? No, no, no. It was like, it would have been too much as, yeah. as a first time thing because we'd never done a big drama and mm-hmm. Thaddeus became available and he's an absolutely lovely guy and a brilliant director and, and loved the script and did a great job. So it was, it was not my kind of thing, you know. Fair enough, yeah. Yeah, there was a big, well, I wouldn't say furore, but... Uh, <laughs> there was, yeah. But I, re- I remember watching it at the, t- <clears throat> at the time and the casting was fantastic, by the way, Eva Bertissel and Dave Murray. And, um, I, I like the fact that you know, 
it wasn't tied up in a nice little package with a nice bow and this is what it is and it's a happy ending because there isn't in scenarios like that these things as we know from you know uh, similar stories that these things are not resolved that was the whole idea I was um, I was sort of eviscerated on live radio by Ryan Tuberty for it I was just back from back from back from LA and I was jet lagged and I remember sitting on the couch and uh, having to talk to Ryan at like 10 o'clock in the morning he's going what happened to Amber where is she and I went, Jesus Christ. And I had to explain to him that, look, you know, people are <laughs> people are conditioned from childhood with fairy tales and, you know, nice stories that have a neat ending, that things all wrap up happily ever after or sadly ever after or whatever, and that life isn't like that and that the story didn't have a neat wrap up. And that's how, I mean, at the time when we were making it, um, Dublin was absolutely plagued by these tragic notices saying missing person everywhere just these mm. missing people all over Dublin in 2008 2009 mm. 2010 in the wake of the crash people just were killing themselves disappearing left right and centre and the f- the impetus to tell the story came from that mm-hmm. and Ryan's you know sort of dogged determination that there should be a, a coherent ending to this and I just kind of went look she's dead that's it forget it and mm-hmm. <laughs> meanwhile on the other chat at the same time on RT Radio 2 Rob was being interviewed by some other guy and he was saying I'm not going to tell you what happened to her <laughs> so we were both we, we didn't stick to the script <laughs> but it just shows how, how crazy the whole thing was that we were both being interviewed on two different shows at the same time about you know what happened people yeah. went nuts mm. anyway you know as, a, as a, my agent at the time said um Nobody likes the last end, last episode of any series. It's always, you know, every mm. every every series finale has people hating it. Yeah, um, I know you mentioned before that you ended up kind of spending a, a good few years developing more projects, kind of in the wake of that, and then kind of getting a bit frustrated with that. Um, it just getting kind of quagmired in, in development hell. Is that what happened? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I made the decision to try to go more towards writing and producing rather than directing, which in retrospect was a very bad idea because I really like directing. And writing is fun, but like... And me and Rob were kind of flavour of the month for a while. People liked Amber in the US very much and they wanted us to do something that had a similar flavour, but in an American setting. And we spent like three years just being quite well paid to develop and write ideas that never happened. And... After the at the end of the three years, the money was gone and nothing had been made, and I was and people had forgotten who I was. You know, I hadn't done anything in a while. You know, people forget really quickly, and I just went like, "Screw this! I don't want to be this anymore. I want to go back to making films." And then I managed to make three films in the next two years or three years. So, um, but I mean, that was much more satisfying to me, even though I didn't make any money out of any of those films. But it was at least I have things that I, yeah, that I made. You know, yeah. And I guess that is one of the things, one of the advantages of documentary in that in some ways you have that bit more freedom. You don't need as much money. Yeah. And on my first film about John Healy, Barbaric Genius, I had started out with with a full crew um, funded by, you know, covered by Animo. Uh, Then as the shoot went on and on and on, because we were I literally was filming with John for five years. There was no money. There was less and less money until eventually there was no money, and it was just me funding it myself and going over to London and filming by myself with him doing the sound and doing the camera, um, going home and downloading the rushes, you know, uh, doing everything. Yeah. And the good thing about that was I learned how to do everything myself, and you know, it kind of it was a baptism of fire because I think with documentary, sometimes you'll have a crew, sometimes you won't. It's in the nature of the form that sometimes when things happen that you need to cover, you may not have the resources you need and you need to be able to do it yourself. So, yeah, it worked. It worked in the in the long run. Um, so I, you must be fairly good at application writing at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there should be a, a module in schools for this. It's a, it's a shame that it's kind of so based on, on, on this kind of like, I mean, everybody, this is how you get you know, state funding in Ireland, mm. you, you, you get to be good at. And some of the, I mean, some of the places that you have to put in applications are far more brain-meltingly complicated than others. Yeah. Um, I'm not, not talking about, I'm just, okay, BAI, Jesus Christ. <laughs> but um, um, it is a skill. 
and doing having meetings is a skill and um it wouldn't be stuff that i would be naturally attuned to but you just have to kind of pick up your game if you want to get things made you have to learn how to sell yourself in a meeting and honestly the, though the more things you do the easier it is because people just go well somebody else already gave him money so therefore he's probably okay and it's that's why it's so hard to get the first one because nobody has nobody has given you the stamp of approval yet yeah mm. so after you've got the first one made and out and released then people kind of give you a little bit benefit of the doubt and then it kind of snowballs a bit yeah that's why there's so many older people making films it's as simple as that because fundamentally to actually get to the point where people kind of look upon you with less um, suspicion you have to have made a few things it's like I always wondered when I was younger why are these 50 year old guys getting money and I'm, now I'm 50 years you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm <joking laughs> now I know you get it yeah there's a body of work so yeah I know I mean, you can it do just it. takes time to get them used to you, you know? yeah. yeah have you any tips for people who are like is it a case when you're when you're you know going through this process of application is it a case of speculating as to what you think they might want as a, and, and veering from your your original vision in order to get in the door and then when you do that there's a turn there's an element of turn about face or have you any tips in terms of that that depends because i mean a lot of the time people who are sitting at the other side of the table don't really know what they want mm. they know that they want you to give them something really interesting mm. and Sometimes you can have a really interesting idea, but they can look at it and go, well, actually, it doesn't hold up because it's based on a kind of a thin premise or what happens if you don't get the access to these people you need or whatever. You have mm -hmm. to kind of it's not so much about trying to figure out what they want, because all they want is to make for the most part what they want is to make a good film that mm. will actually get in front of an audience and 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 be seen widely so that their job is you know secure. Mm -hmm. So what you need to do is to put yourself on the other side of the table and think what would what questions would I ask if I was questioning me what would I be what holes would I be poking in this argument and then you try to strengthen the areas where you think you're weak like with documentary the big one is access it's about you know uh, I can tell you that the easiest thing in the world is getting access to somebody who nobody has heard about the most <laughs> difficult thing in the world is getting access to somebody who is very famous so the more you go in and say Beyonce documentary and they go, great, what's the access? Well, we haven't asked her, but we think we can get, you know. Yeah. Or you go in and say, I want to make a documentary about this guy who lives on his own in a house with no electricity on the outskirts of Dublin. Uh, we have complete access and they go, well, that's great, but we don't know who he is. You know, so it's like, it's a sliding scale. So you have to kind of figure out what's the, it's a balance between um, being able to sell them a really good story and also being able to back up that you can deliver on that story, that you can actually um, make it happen. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, that, I think, think yourself into the headspace of a commissioning editor or a funder who really wants, is kind of on your side. I mean, for the most part, they are on your side, but they want you to, they also need to, they're, they're usually going to have to go to somebody up further up the chain of command and say, this is a really good idea. And then they'll have to defend it to somebody else and, you have to make it easy for them to do that. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with kind of, um, like you said, in, in those scenarios, there are often people who don't really know what they want, but then there are people who are trying to be to justify their positions by giving either feedback that's not relevant or, you know, how does one, when they find themselves trying to overcome those particular obstacles, deal with that? Uh... <laughs> Uh, I, I, Hang on, I, here's, a, here's another curveball. <clears throat> uh, I, I can say that I've never had a bad note from a funding, but from a funder, no, <laughs> never. They don't give you bad notes. There's no such thing as a bad note. You just have to take it on board and go, hmm, okay. I don't know. I mean, you can have. It, it just depends on the individual. Some people are really, really good at um, understanding the creative process and mm -hmm. getting you along to the next stage and understanding that it's fundamentally your vision and they don't want to mess it up but they can have really positive or useful criticisms then on the other hand there are people who say absolutely idiotic things that you can't possibly act on because these are questions you should have asked six months ago or at the beginning of the process or whatever you know it's hard to know i mean i think fundamentally the main rule is as i said before when we were doing our our uh, first stuff with RT on the storyline thing 
when we got to a crisis point, we did not lose the head and we didn't blame people and we didn't go, this is your, your job was to notice this six months ago. We just said, okay, we'll deal with it. It's kind of a difficult thing to fix at this point, but we will, we will fix it. And then you go away and you scream at the wall and, <laughs> you know, kick each other around the place and you fix it and you come back and you go, it's fixed. But, you know, you kind of, you don't throw the dolly out of the pram. That's mm. the main thing. Mm. It's, there's no point. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just, how, do you have any kind of way for dealing with, everyone's obviously different, but subjects and um, some subjects will be more open to having films made about them. Others will be sceptical. How do you approach that? How do you mean in terms of choosing them? or uh, Choosing them and then once you've chosen them, actually getting them on uh, board. When you, when you mean subject, you mean the person the film's about? The, the person, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's very difficult to say because you just... I, I, I've, I've had situations where I've approached people um, and they've been suspicious, but they've been won over. You just have to... I mean, it's easier now that I've made a few films. You can show them what you've done and, you know, I've, I can honestly say that I haven't made a film where at the end of it the subjects were felt they have been misrepresented in mm -hmm. any way. That's never happened to me. And that's because I've always taken on board. You know, one of the things I do is show the subject of the film a cut before it's locked, um, you know, before the actual picture locks so that it can still... Theoretically, changes can be made, but I show them late enough in the in the edit that everything is in place. You know, it's not a very very rough version, so you can tr you're trusting them to kind of you can say, is there anything that misrepresents you or you feel that is being has been distorted? And if they if they do see anything, then you can potentially change it. That I have never had a problem doing that. Yeah. I know not everybody does that, but it's kind of my way of dealing with people um, responsibly. And I think you kind of, people get that sense from the films. So usually, I mean, the thing is, as I said earlier on, some, some people can be volatile. I mean, because of the nature of the kind of people I approach, sometimes they change their minds and drop out. But I, I think just approach them honestly and openly and yeah. enthusiastically and with knowledge and with research done and knowing what they, like when I was talking to Bill Drummond about making Best Before Death, uh, I knew enough in my initial approach to him to say, I do not want to make a film about your incredibly colourful past history with the KLF and the Justified Ancients and Moo Moo and all that. I just want to talk to you about doing something about your work now and who you are and ongoing. And that was the only way. I mean, because he got approaches about documentaries while I was working with him. And invariably, they all wanted to talk about, did you really burn the money? You know, or yeah. whatever. And he <laughs> yeah. was like, look, I, I don't want to address that. So yeah. My, yeah. my approach was the only one that would have worked. And I was lucky because I approached him at a time when he was open. So you just have to be prepared again think yourself into the mindset of the person you're approaching what would they what would what are they always what kind of approaches are they always getting if they're famous um, and do something different you know yeah mm. um, and what was that journey like with bill had he seen any of your work i don't know if he watches films or yeah yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah he does yeah. he's more of a theater guy but oh, yeah. uh, i sent him uh the three films i'd made at that point and he liked them and then we met so, uh, yeah, I mean, it just happened to be he was he had finished one project and he was about to embark on the 12 year world tour. So it was a good time to meet with him. And uh, he kind of like he likes Irish people. Right. Because uh, <laughs> he's Scottish and has a, a lot of kind of um, sentimental, not sentimental, that's the wrong word. He's attached to Ireland. He spent he spends a lot of time in Northern Ireland. He spends a lot of time in the Iron Islands. And uh, I think the fact that I was Irish and the fact that I had approached him in that way without, you know, making it clear that I wasn't going to dig into the past stuff um, mm. kind of won him over. And then we just got on well. And, you know, mm. at this point, I would consider him a friend. Uh, and it was a very, it was a really, it's, it's working with him was a real, and I hope to be working with him further in the future. Working with him has been a, a pleasure, you know. Yeah. Mm. I'd imagine the absolute war scenario or every documentarian's war stream, like you said, like obviously you pitch something and you stuck to your integrity and you follow through on your word and you give him the option then to kind of, you know, shift shift the goalposts a bit as well in his own favour if he didn't feel if it was it was going his way. If you look at something like Mar the Maradona documentary, I don't know if you've seen that. No. Uh, uh, Asif Kapila one. I was oh, yeah, he's great. I haven't yeah. seen the film. Oh, not yeah. a big football head. Uh, but I was listening to him and he was speaking about you know, having 
this, you know, short a lot of time with Maradona. So we had this, you yeah. know, three or four days or whatever. And then the, you know, more or less sticking word, word for word, to, you know, using the, the audio files or whatever. And then Maradona completely turning about face and disowning the whole thing at, at, at the end. And like, I can't even imagine what that would be like for somebody. And then, and then on top of that, I got nominated for X amount of BAFTAs last, this week or whatever last week. Yeah, look, it but happens, you know. I mean, you, you, the more famous the people... I mean, I, I was very far down the line with making a documentary with a very well-known uh, rock group uh, over the last couple of years. And just to the point where we had the money, everything was ready to go, um, they just stopped returning emails and phone just calls. disappeared. You, yeah, when people are, are at a particular stage in their careers where they have... They don't. It's, they're not going to gain anything. I mean, Maradona wasn't going to get anything from Asif Kapadia making a film about him. He's already, you know, a, a world famous figure. So, you kind of, you have to. That's the that, what I was talking about. The trade off, the sliding scale. With the more famous the person you're dealing with is, the more nightmarishly difficult it can be. You know, <laughs> unless they're dead, which is why there's so many documentaries about people who are already dead. Um, but then you got their heirs to deal with. But you know, I mean, it's like it's a horrible. Um, thing to find yourself in and I can't imagine how painful it must be to have Oof. the subject of your documentary that you spent years kind of honouring to suddenly turn around and disown it but I mean the film is the film it's not going to suffer at least he didn't try to suppress it or whatever you know mm -hmm. um, how do you do we ask everybody this on the, on the podcast and they come on and it seems like you know you've you've been through your a, a few games of snakes and ladders at this point how do you respond now obviously there's bounce back ability there but how do you respond to rejection Ab like the, the sheer level of abject rejection that filmmakers in general have to deal with how do you oh respond man. to that it's an everyday thing I mean like I got turned down for funding you know two or three times in the last two or three months you know you just keep trying you just go like you know you, you can allow yourself to be pissed off for a day and then you just kind of have to bounce back and I've gotten much much better at it because to a degree um I think I have more options open to me now. I mean, when it happened to me when I was younger, um, it was harder because there was only, I was kind of continually kind of hitting the Irish film board for things and continually getting turned down for getting, I'd usually get some development and then never get production funding. So I was constantly on the verge of getting something made. It never got made. And that was painful. But now because I can bounce back and forth between different places and different bits of funding and different kinds of projects, I usually have two or three things kind of in different stages at the, on the go. It's much easier to handle. But still, it's a kick in the teeth, particularly if it's something that you really, you really, really wanted to make. All I can say is try to use it as an energy to get the next thing going. You know, the rejection has to power you into thinking, OK, right, that didn't work. What will work? What will I do next? Because, you know, I mean, I got knocked back for something I was really, really keen to do. Uh, at the beginning of December and then at the end of December I got the go ahead for something else I was really keen to do so you kind of go like and that was all based on stuff that I'd done in the I mean I kind of just pitched that during December so it was kind of like you know don't get too down have a think think what options are open to you think you know as wide open as you can try anything and uh, just keep coming up with ideas you know and keep and don't limit yourself that's the main thing you know because mm -hmm. I mean fundamentally people are really looking for good stories. The people who are funding things, whether it's Screen Ireland, whether it's the Arts Council, RTE, whether it's BBC Northern Ireland, whoever else is out there, Netflix, um, they really want you to come to them with an amazing idea. It's just that they want different things. you know. So Netflix mm. will want something very different to what the Arts Council would want or whatever. So you've got to just go like, okay, if this idea that I pitched to the Arts Council doesn't work, what about this idea and would it work for somebody else? You know. Mm -hmm. Did, the challenges that are... To, are face us today compared to the ones that started when you started filmmaking what do you think they are and how different is the landscape yeah that's a question I, I I've, I've kind of had situations where I've been asked to talk to <coughs> young filmmakers who are starting out and yeah. it's something I address because you know when I was starting out the challenges were material it was very very difficult to get your hands on the equipment and then the film stock and you know, you'd kind of to make anything in when I started out was was if you made a film, it was an achievement because you had made a film, even if it was mediocre, it would probably be shown at 200 film festivals because it was a film. Yeah. So that 
paradigm has been turned inside out and now we have the opposite where we have absolute accessibility to the means of production. Everybody can make a film on their iPhone or their iPad or whatever, edit it, put it on YouTube or Vimeo. Everything is available to everybody all the time and the struggle now is to get attention. Like I've just released, um, you know, I've had a bunch of films out in the last while. The really, really saddening thing is even when a film, my distributor on the last film was really pleased with how it did theatrically. And I looked at the, the, the box office numbers and I was like, Jesus, that's terrible. You know, but that was good for, for them. They were like going, this is, this is really good, you know. So the struggle is how to get people to pay attention to what you're doing now and how to get, what's the, what's the marker, you know. And I think it's very interesting that people are using shorter form stuff like TikTok to do really creative things. There's this new really puzzling thing happening in the US, this new company or streaming uh, service called Quibi, which stands for Quick Bites, where they're doing short form um, uh, entertainment and they have people like Spielberg and it, it, it's Jeffrey Katzenberg who used to be um, DreamWorks, it's his thing. And when people that big are doing stuff that's getting shorter and shorter, maybe that's the way to go because people, you know, I've, I, you know, people are either binge watching six hours, 12 hours of succession or they're watching 30 second TikToks. You know, there seems to be nothing in between. And the old school of I'll make a 90 minute film, put it on the cinema and people will come to see it doesn't work. That model is broken. So I don't know. Um, so there are challenges. The challenges are different, but people are finding new ways and evolving to find new, new, new um solutions all the time mm, mm. yeah you can see it with younger filmmakers they're much more thinking about their audiences a lot more which is something that we're all us luddites are <laughs> still have to kind of come to grips with yeah. yeah and the other thing is making an event out of your stuff i mean when i did mm. best before death uh, bill drummond toured with the film and did a play which sort of there was no conventional introduction a Q&A just Bill and uh, an actor Tam Dean Byrne doing a prologue and an epilogue before and after the film and that kind of that was that was how we managed to get people into the cinema because right. you're going you're going to see something that you won't see anywhere else and this is not going to be videoed and you know Bill didn't allow anybody to, 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 to uh, literally if people were had their phones up he would stop and go like put it away you know <laughs> so you're you're not going to see it anywhere else you have to go to the theatre to see it you have to go to the theatre to buy the book that he was selling afterwards and you know did I say theatre I meant cinema jeez I'm not a fucking American sorry you have to go to the cinema <laughs> theatre uh, so, you, so you, it's a cinema experience and I think for people doing smaller films they need to think how they're going to differentiate the experience for the audience from Netflix or streaming and go what is going to get people I mean, I went to see Lonely Battle of Thomas Reed mm. uh, a few times because a friend, of, a friend of mine produced it and they managed to get people into the cinemas in a big way. And it was a very, I mean, they distributed it themselves and mm. they succeeded in getting a very kind of, you know, an unusual, quirky documentary about a very mm. unusual, quirky person to a big audience mm. in Ireland. I thought it was really, really well done. And they did it by, um, I suppose partly it's because it's about a subject that, kind of gets people interested the battle the, 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 the lone guy against the state and against mm. the conglomerate um, but they really they managed to make it an event that people would go and ask it and do a Q&A afterwards and find out more about what was happening to Thomas and all that and it's possible to do it it can be done it just takes hard work and you know coming up with a new idea mm. what's next for you? <laughs> oh <laughs> sorry <laughs> well without wanting to sound negative I mean I'm kind of t the last few documentaries I've made I've really really been proud of but I'm kind of at the point where I just feel like I need to do something different for a while so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of dipping my toe into back into drama for a while on the other hand I am developing some documentary ideas um, but I'm trying to I mean not to sound too mercenary but I would like to make something where I can actually pay myself um, so I'm trying to work on slightly bigger scale stuff that might work as a series internationally and you know um not do the i've done the spending five six years following one person around and making a film and it being a sort of a success of critical success or whatever and nobody going to see it thing so i i kind of want to um audiences are, are a big thing for me at the moment because i'm thinking well, i got a bit of a shock looking at the 
figure. So I'm, I'm actually, the other thing I'm dipping in, into is the podcast world. I'm uh, working with some people who have done some very, very, very successful podcast stuff on a, on some, some true crime stuff, uh, which I'd been developing as a documentary but didn't fly. And that's an interesting one because to me, the whole podcast world, again, you get really good audiences. And that's really key to me at the moment is why, why do you make things if nobody's paying attention? Whereas if you can make a podcast, it can have the same production value and narrative strength and interest as a documentary. But crucially, it's free form. It can go on for 13 hours. You know, one of the struggles with documentaries is making it fit into 80, 90 minutes, because I don't really think most stories merit more than that for for a film, it's very hard to come up with a doc that lasts longer that that deserves the time. So you know that's that's something I'm dipping my toe into, and I think the same kind of skill set that I've developed over the docs, the ability to interview people and get on and you know kind of get access to people, will 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 be very useful in that world as well. Um, would you have any tips for anyone starting out today? Uh, <laughs> would you have any tips? Yeah, I would advise them to have rich parents. <laughs> That's what I always say. Sorry, it's an old joke, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 extremely. I mean, I uh, I I I managed to make my first film because I had been lucky and I had a a gig that was paying me well that I didn't have to do an awful lot of day to day work on. So I was able to. I was in the position where I could turn down work to to make the film. Um, it's very very difficult. Uh, I would say. Um, do everything. Learn to do everything yourself, and don't depend on. Um, you know, you, you, you don't get too dependent on other people's kind of uh, support because you will, if, if you are a first time filmmaker, you will find that at some point you're on your own and you're going to have to find the inner strength to keep going and uh, develop your skill set and be your own producer. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I'll just ask you one more question, if that's all right. Sure. Um, anybody out there excite you at the moment? Um not, not, not. Well, here I guess. But is, is there anybody out there, kind of from a younger generation? Yeah, yeah. Because you seem very clued in with, with kind of what people are doing. Um, I've been working with Michael Higgins, who's an experimental filmmaker. He's been helping me out and stuff, and I've been working. You know, kind of. He's he's an amazing, both 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 a great guy and great filmmaker, great great human being. Uh, and because I kind of like, I wanted to broaden out the, the 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 kind of form of the stuff I was doing. So Michael came on board on What Time Is Death, and we did some kind of really wild uh, stuff using um, analog VHS tape um, transfers to kind of mess up the digital, <laughs> the, the clean digital look of the film. Um, I don't know if he counts as young. I mean, he's a lot younger than me, but God, everybody is. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I haven't been... To be honest, I haven't been... I've been watching a lot of um, old films recently. Oh, the, the only... the, the, the I, I, It's finished now, but the film Long Day's Journey Into Night at the IFI, Began's film, is the most inspiring thing I've seen in years. It's incredible. But that's not an Irish film. It's a Chinese film. I don't know, really. I mean, I have to try and watch more film, more Irish films. I'm just really... I'm not clued in. Uh, but uh, I wish I, I wish I'd you prepared me for that. I could have thought of a better answer. <laughs> I don't know. But Next you're time you're back on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah if yeah, I think absolutely. if I think of one, I'll phone it in later. <laughs> you can dub it in, all right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, thank you so much for your time. Cheers, that was great. No problem at all, man. Thank you. Thank you.